Alrighty, welcome to the Business As Usual podcast, episode 45. Today here we have Anthony Riley on the line. How are we doing, Anthony? I'm very well, thanks, mate. Yourself? Yeah, good. How was uh, how was trading last night? It wasn't too bad, man. It was like the final trading day of the year. So um, I'm still actually running a position. I was hoping to be out of it by the weekend so I could sort of like pretty much finish up for the year. But um, yeah, unfortunately didn't quite get to where I wanted it to get to so we're running it over the weekend and into next week but um other than that mate it's been uh it's, it's been interesting last two months has been pretty quiet so for anyone that doesn't know you um what what are you actually trading um so I mainly primarily trade futures so that's across fixed income equities and currencies um not a lot of people really I think especially from the retail space, don't see currencies as something you trade through futures. But there's, yeah, there's definitely something there that I, I, I trade through. Um, yeah, it sort of works better better for me to be all in the same sort of uh, futures asset class as such. What sort of uh, maturity days are you looking at on the futures? Uh, so like, well, with all with the main features, I trade active contracts with the currencies, but with the bonds, in terms of like mainly looking at ten-year bonds, um, and that's both in Australia, Europe, like the Bund and stuff, and then um, North America. So you're looking at like the T note and the T bonds and the ultra T note, that sort of things. Yeah, and what what sort of uh like what's the length of the futures contract that you're looking at there by length do you mean like well they're how far out delivery is on the futures contracts but the actual contract itself like most of the volume is done in so like right now we just recently rolled over from the december 19 contract to the march 20 contract so with a lot of these ones um predominantly most of the volume is done in like so most of the volume now will be done in March. Um, I don't really trade like June or SEP 20 now just because sometimes they can move a little bit strange. I mean, I know people definitely trade that, like the calendar spreads and everything like that. But I think the calendar spreads and that kind of thing are probably something that's more traded with uh, like more short-term interest rates rather than the further out ones. Yeah, I know that's from from my experience, but I mean, there's probably an edge there. But yeah, I don't really look past the one that's the most active with the most volume, generally speaking. I was gonna say, how did you actually get into trading these products? Because they're pretty like your general retail trader isn't going to be um, trading these sorts of things, and I'm sure a lot of people listening haven't actually heard of um, some of the stuff that you're going to be talking about. Yeah, so I learned it all basically through the prop firm. Like I was pretty much just a retail trader prior to that. Uh, Then when I kind of got exposed to, you know, fixed income and spreads and, you know, calendar spreads, things like that, did certainly take me a while to pick that up and to use that. I mean, main some of the main reasons it's not really looked at a lot from retail traders is because of the margin requirements. Uh, for example, like for some of the US futures for a one lot, uh, you know, it probably cost you like two, three thousand dollars margin for a one lot uh, for maintenance margin and stuff like that. I think that's it's around that. It might be a bit less to be honest, but um, you know, you do need quite a bit of a bit of margin. 
How many lots would you be trading? Oh, it depends on the type of trade, but anywhere from like maybe 20 to 100 or 150 maybe. Um, the range is quite the range is quite large. It just depends on if I'm sort of just a spread or like the um, the notes over bonds. So like the intermarket spreads and things like that. You can put a lot more size on them because the ranges are generally smaller and they don't move as much as if you were to trade it outright. So that's kind of where the sizing difference comes in. You can sort of manage the same sort of risk, but you're almost eliminating a lot of the volatility of the market. It's like one of those market neutral kind of strategies, you know what I mean? Um, where you're looking for two things. There might be a realignment that you're looking to take advantage of and you, know, you might be buying one thing and selling the other or you're trading like the Aussie curve, the Aussie threes, tens. Uh, so in, in something like that, um, you can generally trade a lot more size because the ranges are typically smaller. Of course, they still can expand and go crazy every now and again, but um, with the ranges being smaller, more size, and then that's where you get that discrepancy. You know what I mean? You might trade. You kind of need access to that that capital from that prop firm, because how many when you were when you were starting out, um, how many how many lots were you sort of trading then? So it basically starts off with, well, when I first started, uh, you start off with a daily stop. So prop trading is a little bit different than retail trading in that you don't, you're not given like a capital base, you're given a daily amount of money you can lose per day and limits in a product. So we started off with like three lots, for example, in the US T-note and you know, you get a couple of hundred dollars a day stop. Um, and from that, that's sort of how you build a strategy you know people who trade currencies and stuff ask me you know uh how is like it's similar or how would you align it to currencies and all that sort of stuff and i'd be like well if you look at it like this right let's say you have a thousand dollar a day stop just as an example right this is nothing like this is not a specific uh thing that's occurred but like if you have a maximum open positions in one day of four trades then you know, you might risk 200 or $250 per trade um, risk so that you can take your maximum amount of trades in one day and not be over your stop, if that makes sense. So then if you were risking 1% of your account, the equivalent account size trading through that would be like a 20 grand account. The only difference being is that if a currency person was to come and trade futures, you couldn't really do a lot. Like you would have to only trade the pairs against the dollar because the thing with currency futures is that they're all based like they're all against the US dollar so it's like Aussie dollar CAD dollar pound dollar euro dollar and everything like that so if you want to create like Aussie CAD you know you got to buy Aussie dollar sell Aussie CAD and sometimes there's a ratio difference because of the notional value of one contract so you can't sometimes you can't just put a one-to-one um, and sometimes, for example, if it's like a 0.6 beta between the two of them, right, like the ratio, you um, you might not be able to get a stop that's like 200 bucks. Okay. Yeah, so that's you're going to have to sort of just, push it up higher. Yeah, yeah. Like when I first started doing currencies, you can't. I never really had a stop of less than like 1000 or $1,500 a trade, which for a retail trader is quite probably a... Um, a large amount to sort of put on um, at sort of any point. 
Yeah, definitely. If you've if you've saved up your own money, kind of thing, and you know you've just funded your uh, your account at twenty k, you don't want to be losing ten percent of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. What what's the what's the rough sort of percentage of days that you're actually hitting that stop when you're first starting out in a prop firm? So, oh, in terms of drawing down that much, yeah, man. So how it works, generally speaking, is the stops are always a bit tighter when you begin, right? So you're going to hit it more often. Uh, but as you continue now, like, man, I reckon I've hit the stop maybe maybe once in a couple of years nowadays. Oh, wow. Um, you don't hit it as much anymore because it's it's proportionally different. Like back then, you could put a trade on and be right close to your stop if it's just a blip in the market. Now I need like a really significant move. Like it's almost like now because back then, right, when you start, you sort of trading like one product, one strategy, but now when you're trading across different things, you almost have to, your stop almost has to incorporate every single trading strategy that you have stopping out on that day. Yeah. Mm. You're not necessarily putting all the risk on every day sort of thing. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So some days you might not even have half your trades on. So there's no chance you will even get close to your stop or be anywhere near it. Whereas when when you're first sort of starting, you might have one or two trades in your stop. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Because, you know, you you only got one product that you might be trading, you got like smaller risk and you're trying to build build it up. It's just as much uh, important for the the trader as well as the prop firm just to control the downside risk. Yeah, I'm sure. Because obviously, you know. I was going to say, I'm sure your interests are aligned with that of the prop firm. Like, are you... If you go into a period of drawdown where you're not making any money, do you get paid during that period or no? No, there's no salary. Like I'm not on a salary. We're just on straight profit split and that's all I've been on the whole time I've been there. That's that's predominantly the prop model. The prop model does not pay salaries, not in Australia anyway. Um, the only sort of things you'll get a salary with is if you're working as a part of like a like some sort of a trading team where you might be with a bunch of other people where maybe you'll get a bonus if the whole book sort of does well uh but that's very that's not i wouldn't say very common um it's got its ups and downs obviously like you know some people yeah so obviously you get access to more capital but you get you get access to that mentoring side as well which um which is massive yeah yeah definitely it's that is definitely an important thing the fact that you know you do work with mentors and people who are very much very successful in the markets and they've been doing it for you know 20 30 years and stuff like that they're always good to you know pick their brain learn from and gain all sorts of insight and stuff like that kind of gives you a unique sort of look at it something that you're probably not going to get if you're a retail trader or part of a lot of online trading communities Um, what's the sort of like level of experience that's kind of like the average level of experience in the prop firm like how many years have the guys been trading in there for roughly? So, to be honest, I guess the uh, the turnover rate at prop firms is generally on the high side, just obviously due to the fact there's no salary. You know, if somebody's not making money, they kind of like get rid of themselves, if that makes sense. I mean, you don't need to fire anyone if no one's making money for a year. <laughs> yeah, They've got bills to pay, you know, some people got families and stuff. They, they, got to, um, they got to do that. But in terms of, I guess it sort of depends I mean once you kind of pass the three to four year mark everyone's kind of um, been there for a while like 
you know, there's a lot of people who have been there for like five to ten years and stuff like that. Um, I did um I did want to touch on the the products again that you were trading just so that myself and the people listening sort of have a better idea. So when you talk about trading spreads between products, what 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 are you actually putting against each other and how are you actually um, sort of structuring those trades? Yep. So let's look at like the the uh, trade between the US T-note and the US T-bond. So generally a lot of retail traders think of a spread as the difference between the bid and ask. But the spread in this is where you're buying one product and selling another product and creating sort of like a, which because those two are both from the same exchange and both interest rate products, they have an exchange traded spread product so there's a thing called the yeah, notes over bonds, which is, has its own um, basically uh, depth of market ladder where you can place bids and offers in that and buy market in that particular product. And what that will then do is execute in the background long one and short the other. So say for example, if you wanted to- Is that constructed by a broker? Uh, no, it's exchange traded. So it's like an it's like a product that's offered from the CME. Okay, and the CME executes that on their back end. Yeah, yeah. So pretty much, it's almost like a, I guess it's almost like an interface for a, a way to get into the two products. Um, because they're, they're like that product will have its own pricing, which is the difference between the two of them, and that will be the set ratio. So for example, it might be one to one and the ratio might, the difference between the two might be 16. So it'd be like, it'd be like 16, 16 half. Um, and then if you were to go to market and buy, say say the, say the bid offer is like 16 and 15 half. If you buy 15 half, then it will buy the US 10 year and sell the 30 year or whichever way you want to play the spread like that. Yeah, so it's just a quicker way to stop you from getting legged. Because obviously when you're trading spreads, right, when you're buying one and selling another, the biggest risk in a spread is getting legged. And what that basically means is when you get filled on one position, but then you don't get the same fill on the other one. So this having an exchange show the spread means you can get the price you want in both without any legging risk. Just one product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which then executes it into the two. Um, yeah, but then would that that would constrain you on the ratios that you have access to? Yeah, through that. I mean, you can always ex you can always execute it manually. Of course, then you have that legging risk. And there's uh, tech related stuff, things called auto spreaders and things like that, which you can get it to do semi automated. But you have to put in a lot of parameters and how it reads the the depth of market ladder and all this sort of thing as to whether it hits market or whether it goes on the offer or the bid or whatever but you could yeah you, you're limited through the exchange traded ones but you can sort of do whatever you want anyway if you wanted to do it manually is the firm usually if, if you're developing that sort of tech is the firm usually developing that in-house or do you go through a broker to do that so that's through a company called uh trading technologies they offer a thing which has an auto spreader feature on their platform um, same with the charting software has CQG has the same sort of thing, which is an auto spreader. That's 
basically is because I mean you can do a lot in a training technologies has a thing called uh, ADL which is like a algo dashboard and you can put a lot of like if you want to create your own sort of semi-automated entry or exit strategy or something like that you can do it through that but yeah that has its own um you know positives and negatives to if you can you know if you put the time in to learn how to use it efficiently and be able to uh to do all of that but yeah generally generally if tech in a trading firm is done in-house it's probably not through a like a a third-party software from what i've spoken with other people in the industry and stuff like that people who are generally using uh tech in their firm that they built themselves that runs on its own separate separate sort of things um that's probably you'd probably find hft people and everyone like that will be using their own custom built software i guess but yeah yeah because it's this the sort this software in general isn't cheap anyway like it's it's quite expensive even for like for a retail trader i mean you're looking at you know if you get trade trading technologies with adr with auto spreader and all that sort of stuff uh to trade futures on it'll cost you 400 usd a month plus 30 cents for every lot that you do or you can pay 1400 usd a month and that's a flat rate so it kind of you know you can either trade it two different ways and then it depends on um you know how much you are volume you do i mean you can look that up on their website that's got the pricing and everything that they offer people so but yeah if you're a retail trader trading you know like a twenty thousand dollar account that's probably not going to be um very advantageous even though it sounds (laughs) cool you know you're sort of better off learning to code in python or something yourself and building your own things and then connecting to the through apis and all that sort of stuff yeah what are what are what are some other products that you actually trade spreads on, apart from like the notes and bonds and stuff? You could trade them on equity indexes. So, for example, you might look at like the Nikkei against the Spy Mini, or you know the FTSE against the DAX, and things like that. Things that are generally correlated or have some sort of a reason to be correlated. I mean, they're both equity indexes. There's obviously nuances. You know, you can't just trade these things blindly. You need to learn about them, uh, but yeah you can trade them you can literally trade them on anything man like you could run a trade where you're doing you know the nikkei against the t-notes against the japanese yen you just have to be able to work out how to chart it so that you and work out the ratios and that can be quite difficult when you're trading different products that are quoted in different things uh especially like with the u.s fixed interest rate products are all quoted in like 30 seconds so which can get a little bit confusing like if you look at like for example the um like the aussie bonds is 100 minus the yield which is like simple as anything right but then you got things like you know like the ust note is like 128.07 so it's like you know takes a little bit longer to work some things out like that yeah right how do you actually go about determining if there's a trade in that particular spread like how do you say okay one's gotten away from itself and one sort of needs to come back to the to the uh average the mean how do you know how far away like how do you know to to seek out that trade 
in a particular, or are you just watching like a set number of products and then um, you're working off standard deviations or something like that? Yeah, from... you can you can do like regression on it to see if it, and you can work out if it, um, you know, firstly, you, well, I guess first you need to see if they're even correlated, you know, products need correlation, but then they need co-integration, which is like their ability to revert back to some sort of a mean. So you kind of want, those sort of products i mean you can go deep into different types of testing you know where you test for like stationarity and uh, like johansson test and adf test and all that sort of thing you can you can use to find two products and you know statistically see if there is a relationship where they do revert back to a meme once you've kind of got that i guess then you've got a you know just because something reverts back to a meme doesn't mean there might be a trade there or there might not be a trade you know some things actually you might actually find an edge where it doesn't look like there's an edge you know what i mean um so then it just comes to bringing up a chart looking at the chart going through doing some back testing you know brainstorming a bunch of ideas and really just looking at you know where you can find the edge you know standard deviations is generally like a uh, very common simplistic way to start i mean you know you can even do this in in equities man you know um you know a lot of people might spread like for example bhp and rio right uh which for one it eliminates you know market direction risk so you would assume that if one goes down like if the broad market goes down you're not really going to suffer because you short one long one so you really just exposed really to the individual nuances of the company uh, which obviously can have a big effect if something comes out that's very company specific one thing moves and the other one doesn't uh, but if for example it's just order flow or you know someone just needs to buy something one day then that relationship might hold and you might get a good spread trade on there yeah so i guess if you're i guess those sorts of strategies where you're say trading a mean reversion you're wanting to stay away from products while there's news coming out about them because that can kind of throw things is that yeah absolutely what you're trying to do? yeah yeah generally speaking yes sometimes the news can act as like a reason for divergence so what it will come down to when you're back testing is like what sort of what are outliers really like what are the things that can blow the spread apart and cause the relationship to disjoint because you've got to remember too man just because something is highly correlated doesn't mean that it's co-integrated doesn't mean it reverts back to a mean you know two products can be going side by side to 10 bucks then one can jump to 15 in like a five minute candle and then it can be 15 and 10 continuously you know what i mean and then it can go to 20 and they're going to show like 90 something percent correlation because it's just one five minute window they weren't correlated but that move has would have disjointed the spread and might mean you might be stopping out yeah i mean that that's what brought down ltcm wasn't it that's ah. sort of uh when they when russia defaulted and it just blew apart their strategies effectively yeah okay i'm not too familiar with that but yeah it's if yeah well, they were they were trading a lot of mean mean reversion stuff back in like the late nineties, and they were leveraged up to their ears. And oh. they, Russia Russia default. I think they they were leveraged like twenty times or something, and they had about a hundred hundred twenty billion uh, bets on. Damn. And it all it all went bang when Russia defaulted on their debts, and the ruble collapsed, and uh, like all the all the big banks in New York had to come bail them out to stop everything freezing up 
yeah sheesh that's pretty wild dude that's pretty damn wild but i can see how that comes about i mean the whole thing with a mean reversion strategy is right the further it gets away from the mean the better value the trade is right it's like an elastic band but every now and again the elastic band breaks and that's when you generally take your big hits um mean reversion trading is a lot like an insurance company where you take you know premiums consistently over time but you'd occasionally have to pay a blowout yeah and when your leverage that highly that's it's not good yeah i mean you can't really afford the downside as much when you're already leveraged you know as soon as it goes offside a little bit you're kind of already sweating yeah speaking of leverage how much uh are you running just like standard cme leverage or um it's a good question um to be honest mate i'm not really familiar with it because i just like we just have limits in products so i, I forget I, I i can't even remember off the top of my head what leverage they use as standard um might be like 10 or 20 to 1 i think in the bonds yeah because it's just like oh, yeah i think it's 10 yeah like you just put down the margin requirement which is taken care by the prop firm yeah and then we just have yeah. to manage our individual risk and our limits and with our limits you can never go over your maximum allocated limit anyway um so you can't really put on more size than what you are being authorized to of like yeah so you can that's sort of where that lies i think yeah. But I guess getting to the question, you're not necessarily trading any sort of strategies where you're you're conscious of taking on extra leverage on certain positions or or not. Like, what's my thoughts on it? Or no, I mean, what your your strategies aren't based around sort of taking leverage on one position and not on others, or it's just kind of running whatever standard. Yeah, well, I've got like a couple of different trades. I mean, leverage in my sort of trading doesn't really have too much of a of an impact i mean it will it will have an impact from like the prop firm side for example if like if everyone is in their max positions that's probably going to put any any prop firm under some sort of pressure because they have to put up a lot of money for the margins which means you know if the positions go offside then the firm as a whole could be margin called i don't know I don't know if that happens, to be honest. I mean, I don't know how many. I, I think generally that would be low low chance of happening just due to the diversity of traders at some firms. You know, any firm who's got all the traders trading the one product and they're all in the same trade might have a bit of an issue. But most firms, I think, are pretty diverse in terms of, you know, to sort of avoid that risk. And again, as well, you're basically mainly looking at firms that trade futures uh like there's a few around but there's not that many in australia that actually do futures so they're the only real ones who have to deal with that sort of a thing i mean yeah so is there someone at the firm that's managing like sort of the entire book or is it yeah we done do, mainly through software or no nah, there'd be people who people who manage monitor risk and um all that sort of stuff 24 7 basically um, whenever the market's open, there's there's people in there on rotating shifts and stuff, monitoring everything like that. Yeah. So what's the what's the headcount at a typical prop firm then? Ooh, it depends, man. I mean, some of them might only have ten or fifteen people. I mean, uh, PropX is the one that I trade for in Sydney, and there's probably about 120 to 150 traders that 
trade through Propex. Um, so yeah, Propex. So 120 got, traders are there people who don't trade and just manage yeah. manage risk and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's maybe four, four or five people maybe that do risk. Um, yep. Then you got like IT, which is like pretty much like people working almost 24 hours doing IT, and then you've you've obviously got other people who are more in the admin side of the business in um in the different areas and stuff like that as well so it's it's quite there's quite a few quite a few people ranging in different things obviously different prop firms have different people to manage things you know there's people who will be sort of like the trading manager and mentor and stuff which is like a in-house thing uh people who will manage all that side of that side of things where you know if you've if you're having a hard day or you're having a hard period you go and sit with someone and have a chat and things like that what um what actually made you want to join a prop firm? Well, I what guess. Was the, what was the initial thing that sort of like sparked it for you? Well, after sort of finding out about the existence of them, it took me like a little bit to sort of pull the trigger, I guess. But at the end of the day, man, I wanted to step up. And I think being a retail trader in my, because I wanted to trade, and that's what I wanted to do. That's what I still want to do today. And I knew I needed to step up and be in the right environment. And I thought to myself, this is probably going to be a good opportunity for me to learn from some more experienced people and, you know, to learn a different style of trading, to improve and things like that. So I thought, why not give it a go? Um, and I went in as a, as a trainee trader. Like I was already trading. I was already sort of going along on my own journey as a retail trader. And I could have went in how as many, somebody How many years were you trading for? Prior to... Before, before that, yeah, ooh, yeah. Man, I was like, so technically it was like five years, like technically, but like the okay. first three years I was like a Gumby, bro. So um, the, the first opening of the brokerage account. <laughs> yeah. Well, five the first years, three years, yeah. man, I was all over the place. So it, only, it was only in like 2011 that I started to actually get some traction. And then 2013, I joined the prop firm. Okay. So what's a typical... A career for a, a prop trader are they going to stay in the prop firm uh, for most of their career or do a lot of people if they if they kind of make it and are actually successful do they go start their own firm or uh, that's an interesting question actually uh, I mean I'm sort of not sure like I, I can only speak from the time that I've been there and most people that I've been there who are doing well are still there Obviously, people come and go if they move overseas. I mean, it can be a bit hard. Uh, people don't generally... People might take it easier. Uh, a common theme, I guess, is definitely people have other things that they do as well. Uh, something that I've sort of noticed is a lot of people have a lot of other business interests, you know, outside of their trading. I mean, I'm assure, I, I guess that's where, you know, if you, if you do well for, you know, like a five-year window... You know, you might invest in property or you might invest in a business or some businesses or something like that. And then, you know, your time is split then between, you know, the business and your trading. Because trading is obviously quite a, an entrepreneurial thing. Uh, a lot of people who seem to do very well are quite entrepreneurial. And even people that I've seen who have come to PropX and traded and, you know, maybe not cured it, but they've ended up, you know, being like, yeah, you know what, trading's probably not fully for me so they've left and they're still very entrepreneurial and they've gone and done something else you know they might have gone and started another business or gone and worked and 
joined another startup or something like that. Um, that seems to kind of be the, the the way of the people that have have had some sort of success in the markets. That's I guess yeah, the path it's they definitely, take. It's definitely not easy. Like yourself, you said you were struggling for like five years or so before even getting into the prop firm. And then how how long after that was it before? Because I guess the point of a retail trader is you're kind of like struggling along and there's a moment where you actually start making some decent income. How long was it until in like into the prop firm was it that you actually started being like, okay, I'm actually, I'm actually going well here. Yeah. So like, I guess I did a lot of the hard work before I got there. Um, so it was really like, in the first few years, like the first probably year and a half of trading just in general before I got to the prop firm, I probably didn't take it seriously enough. And then when I did take it seriously, I made some traction. And then the lead up to the prop firm was, was going well. And then when the prop firm started though, I kind of had to reset because obviously it was a totally different style of trading. So it was almost like starting again. So then from that period, the first time I withdrew was I think eight months, eight months? Was it eight months? Thereabouts? So that's a fair chunk. So did you have to have like some sort of side income that you were sort of getting in order to no, work at have the prop savings, firm? bro. It, yeah, so the thing savings. is like, there are people that did do that. There are people that would work on the weekends and things like that. But um, to be honest, I think to maximize your own like time and you know you still need to have a life of some sort you still need to get sleep you know want to be working you know 24 hours on the weekends you know two 12 hour days as well as trading during the week because you know at the beginning of your trading journey because it is like a startup it's like your own startup like your own business you know it's not joining a prop firm is not something you do if you just want to come work for eight hours a day like you are absolutely delusional if you think you're going to be successful just rocking up doing eight hours a day like a normal job um, and you know you need to put the time in because it's a lot more active it's day trading sort of stuff you know what I mean and like yeah the market might only be open 8 hours a day if you trade equities for example but futures are open you know pretty much 5 days a week and you know now you've got cryptocurrency which is like 24-7 so yeah the, the cocaine to it <laughs> yeah exactly right it's like there's so many things you can do to continuously be bettering yourself and at the end of the day like you're a result of what you're putting in and you're going to get out what you've put in. So like if you're sort of, you know, like if, if you're not making any money anyway and you want to trade eight hours a day and think that you're going to be, you know, pulling six figures in a year, you might, or why would you not just go harder and go like 12, 16 hours a day and shorten the time? If that's what you believe, I mean, it's not to say it's going to happen. You know, I mean, you might not make any money for a year and still be doing 16 hours a day, but you're going to learn a hell of a lot more. You know, a lot more screen time, a lot more like riding the waves. So, how do you actually stop yourself trading then? If if the markets are essentially 24/7, you can trade some sort of product. Is it difficult to sort of step back and say I've done enough work, or you just sort of yeah, I'd like to hear well, your thoughts on that. I guess I'm I'm lucky I'm not really trading cryptocurrency as much at the moment. So I don't really have that ability to trade 24-7. But I mean, during like, for example, like with the bonds and stuff and the equity markets being open, the futures and stuff being pretty much open right throughout the week, just comes down to your strategy, man. 
you know that if your strategy has an edge, why would you bother trading anything else? You know, every time you put something on is a potential trade or idea where you might actually lose money from something that might be untried, untested, and might then take P and L away from a good trade that actually has an edge. Um, so I just tried to stick with my trades that have an edge. Like I don't even care if I don't trade today or this week. If there's nothing there that I believe has an edge, then I'm not going to bother. Yeah. So just getting back to the idea of uh, like a career for a trader, for someone who say they are they've done some retail trading or they're possibly in uni or whatever, what would be the the difference between going to a firm like PropX or going to a firm like Two Sigma or uh, Optiva? So with those two, with Optiva and Two Sigma, you're going to be paid a salary from what I understand. Uh, and you, I'm not sure how the, the, the pay structure works apart from that. It's a totally different style of trading, but theirs is more stats model-based trading where... Propex is more like point and click trading. Um, the other, yeah, it's a bit more like trading against like maths trading sort of thing. I mean, I haven't worked at them. This is just obviously what I've what I've heard because I know some people that have worked at those places um, and it's quite different. I mean, for a, a person going to get into it, I guess the biggest thing and the reason why people would go to that over a place like Provix is just because basically because of the salary. You know, a lot of people out of uni just want to get paid, which is a bit of a catch-22 in a way. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're just doing a job just to earn money and get paid and whatever, like, I mean, go work in the mines, bro. Don't know why you, you know, unless you unless you're passionate about it. Like, seriously, I mean, if you're just doing it for the money, like, go and get the money. Like, don't delude yourself into thinking you want to be a trader and then you're only there for the money because you're not going to, you won't be able to put the time and effort in that's needed to actually get to consistency. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I suppose the skill set's probably different for a firm like Two Sigma and they're going to be hiring the, the data scientists. Yeah, yeah. It is a lot more around the sort of that side of things. Uh, but at the same time too that can sort of help you a lot in prop trading because obviously if you can build models yourself around different products and different strategies and things like that you know you just carry that risk of like you know if it takes you a while to learn or it takes you a while to find a strategy and get profitable you know and when you're straight out of uni a lot of people's parents might be like oh why are you working you know 12 hours a day and not getting paid oh they're like like scams or something like that and it's just because people and it's because it's so different people just don't understand it do you know what I mean like it's like starting your own business like when you get paid you invoice them from your ABN like it's you know that's that's what it yeah. is I yeah, mean you're not you're not working for a business you're you're just working a, within their, their yeah, environment it's pretty much you're in a partnership with the prop firm to trade their money and you're going to get a profit split of it. Like that's the model. That's how it works. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, if anyone straight out of uni was going to go and start a, start their own business, right? For one, like prop firms don't ask you to put money up. You don't buy anything. 
you're just giving your time and dedication you know what i mean that's that's what you're putting in initially so for people to go there and then be like oh you know i'm not getting paid and blah 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 blah, it's like well dude if you started your own business what are you going to be making money day one as well are you like <laughs> come on exactly. man you know what yeah. i mean like especially when people's ideas of businesses anyway you know everyone thinks you got to go and buy you know brick and mortar things and shops and all this sort of nonsense i mean fair enough if you got online you know online startup costs are low but yeah, even still. So, so as a as a new trader starting out, say they've got absolutely no experience at all. They've just they're in high school or something, and they're like, "I want to be a trader." What would you say is the best path towards becoming not just like you know fluffing around trading um, markets willy nilly, however they want, but actually being okay? I want to make this a career. I want to do this for the rest of my life. What would be the best sort of path? Do they want to go into would, is it a requirement that they go and start trading in retail first or can they sort of, you know, jump straight into into prop and sort of learn from there? You can do both. You can go straight into, into prop, but obviously you need to know what you're getting yourself into. Uh, for a retail trader, it is better. Like, I guess you would always like to see some sort of trading experience because the barrier to entry into trading is so low for somebody to have wanted to trade so much and if they want to do it yet they haven't taken the time to open the trading account it's kind of like do you really want it you know what i mean it's kind of like it's so simple to do it's like it's like somebody telling you they want to be like the world's best soccer player but they've never even kicked a ball around in the park you're like bro that's free to do like why aren't you doing that <laughs> you, know, you know what i mean yeah exactly it's, it's, kind yeah, of it's like, like have you even opened a demo account or something yeah, yeah yeah like i mean to be fair like you can put a couple of hundred bucks in for a live account and at least give that a go um but then i guess it's just about trying to find some sort of education or way to learn i mean there's a lot of different things now where you can learn different styles you can pick up online for you know not too much you can jump in with some of them and learn from that to start with um if you're not in the position to you know take six months or a year out of a job or you know where you don't have any expenses to go to go down the prop route because that's obviously quite difficult for people if they're a bit older but if you're just out of uni or just out of school or whatever you know you can probably live with your parents for a low cost and do that sort of thing i mean hey i always if people just quickly if people ask me i'm always i always give them the idea that like if you wanted if you're based in a place that has a prop firm then realistically there's sort of no excuses i mean if you want to get in dude like you won't be trading 24 7 like let's be real and as long as you've got like a fairly new car you can do uber in the mornings then you can hit the charts and hit the markets trade all day and um you'd be able to survive i mean you're not thriving but it's not about thriving it's about learning the skill you know what i mean like especially if you're still at home i guess too like you think of a lot of people that go to uni for four or five years they're not they're not getting paid to do that uni course whereas you know it's it's much the same as you know learning at a prop firm you're not getting paid to to do that learning as well but it might not be as long as a uni degree yeah exactly man you might have a better chance to come out and go into into something where you can actually make money i mean you know i think every like i think we've all been to uni i mean uni is one of those things where like 
I know for me, like I did business accounting at uni and it probably wouldn't have made a difference whether I did that or not as to whether I'm a good trader or not, to be fair. Are there there any degrees in particular that would actually help you? I mean, there's... You would think? Like, I mean, to be fair, right, like there's things that can give you a bit of an advantage, right? But literally, you're better off getting in there and learning from experience, you know what I mean? Like... I have a, a friend of mine who's just joining, who will be joining um, PropEx soon, and he he hasn't been to uni or anything like that, and um, he's very switched on, loves loves trading, loves the markets, and if you have that sort of passion for it, you just read, and like there's enough books out there that you don't need to pay was it thirty thousand, twenty thousand, whatever the hell a university degree costs to learn it, like. You know, you can buy 500 bucks worth of books and bro, that's a lot of books. And you can consume a book a week and you can trade on the demo and journal and record and watch YouTube videos of people and you'll get somewhere in a year. Like you might not be consistently profitable, but you're going to know a lot. Yeah, it's a different type of person. Like someone who is going to go to a uni and thrive off a uni degree is a different type of person than someone who's going to trade. Like just just like you're not gonna have someone go and like become a a star sport sports player or like the I guess the the image I have is someone who say is gonna be a great fighter pilot for example probably doesn't thrive in, inside a classroom or a great uh, special forces uh, person they're not gonna thrive inside a classroom. And it would be a little bit of a waste of time for them to go and do that because their skills are not learning and they're probably just not going to do, do so well in, in the classroom either. Mm, yeah, absolutely, man. It's all that depends as well, like what type of learner you are. You know what I mean? Like some people, some people do learn in different ways. I mean, I know, you know, a lot of people that I've worked with and myself, you know, you learn a lot more from just doing and being involved and making mistakes and then learning from those mistakes rather than being told this is how it is because you know especially in trading where you can apply it something can be so mechanical but something can also be so discretionary and it can change so quickly and you know you know your intuition can come into play and you know your pattern recognition and what you've seen in the markets and how you manage your emotions and how much risk you take as a person and you know even things like did you have an argument with your partner or spouse that morning and all this sort of stuff comes to play you can't learn that in a degree no like no. you know if you're on well this is a this is why I brought up uh, like the, the pilot thing because I've I'm a pilot and when you learn to fly like you, you, there's some places you can go and you can sit in a classroom and learn to fly but once you get up in the air it's just it's a different ball game because like you can know the theory and the one of the things that you learn to do when you when you learn to fly is what to how to recover from the aircraft spinning which is effectively when if you're in a turn you go too slowly one one wing stops flying and you just flip on your back and spin towards the ground and you can you can learn the theory behind it but the first time you actually do that and you're you've got your nose facing towards the ground and you're rocketing towards it. It's like, well, either you can you can learn from that situation or you can't. And some people some people can't do it. And so they don't they don't do so well once they get up in the air, but they can know the theory. Uh, yeah. So exactly, right? I guess. 
What's um? So I just wanted to talk about then. Um, so what are some of the biggest like psychological challenges that you've had to face? Like you know, you've talked about coming in the office after the maybe fighting with a girlfriend or something and having to trade all day, and you're in this super stressful environment. What are some of the biggest things you've had to sort of work through yourself and sort of discovering yourself in order to actually become that successful trader? Yeah, man. I, like, firstly, I guess this sort of thing never ends. Um, it's it's like a never-ending cycle where you're always learning more about yourself. But um, it's really, like, for me, I've probably learned to detach myself a lot from what I take into the markets. So like, for example, you know, I try to always do meditation. Like for me, for the beginning of the day, I find that I always get a bit more, on tilt is not the right word, but a bit more like, what would you call it? Um, flustered, it's not really flustered either. It's just like, you're not as focused, right? When I start like, I might have be having conversations with people on social media or I'm reading an email or someone sent me an email about something stupid and it just gets on my nerves a little bit. When I start my day off like that, I'm always a little bit more like scattered. But when I sort of start my day and I, and I eat well and I do meditation and stuff before I do my trading plan and then I start the day, I'm a little bit more like clear and focused. It's probably one of the biggest things, man, is it's kind of like you want to make sure that you're always in like the right sort of mind frame and zone and things like that when you're doing key parts of the day. So for me, obviously, the most important thing for me is the planning of the day because that dictates really what sort of trades I'm taking. So if I'm feeling angry or pissed off, I might start to either be more aggressive with certain trades or I might be too risk averse with some trades or you know, you might try to do things differently because these emotions are really playing in the background. That's probably Are there one. days where where you get in the office and you, you notice that you're just not in the right mind frame and you just say it like, Yeah, like 100%. Not, not, it's not happening today. Yeah, 100%. It happened this week. Um, I had some emails about... What was it about? Uh, it was about something. It was about, about something or other. Like... The first thing I opened was an email and it was like somebody telling me I had I had to pay for something and I was like, this is already being paid. Like, what do you want about? And that just annoyed me because then I had to go and chase it up. So like, for me, it was like, uh, already like people figure not like, you know, getting their own shit together and then it throws me out on my day because now instead of me calming myself down and preparing myself, I'm chasing people to tell them that they don't have their stuff in order. So that sort of thing just frustrates me. <laughs> um, and so being able to kind of like calm yourself down and be like that is still takes time, you know, like even after that, I sort of, I have to maybe like take a bit more of a break away or I go for a walk or I listen to something just to calm myself down. So half of it's also knowing like where your own sort of trigger points are what sort of gets you a bit on edge like for example if you're trading and you know if you know maybe you're a very active day trader and you know maybe the first half of your day if you're down uh you find you generally trade bad in the afternoon so maybe you got to do more stuff in the lunchtime break to really reset yourself so that when you come back you're not carrying over this 
expectation of needing to make money back. So you might be doing things that are a bit more irrational. So are you trying at all to isolate yourself from everything in the mornings or is it more like that's not things don't tend to get you uh, off focus or like things so, like the news or yeah i don't listen to any news to be honest man i don't watch any sort of normal tv um the only thing i do look up that's news related is like forex factory um if anything else is wild that's happened like i'll see it on the chart if something that obscene has gone on I'll see it as soon as I look at the charts and my charts are on 24 seven. So like, as soon as I walk past the computer, if I see something unusual, I'll be like, I'll look at it. But nowadays I generally don't check my emails until I've done my original, my first trading plan of the day because I don't want no one's, you know, stupid emails about something or other that is not even important getting on my nerves. Um, but yeah, you know, I can try and detach as much as I can, but part of it too is it's not about trying to be emotionless. It's just trying to sort of control your emotions better, you know, and if you have to, you know, we all sort of react to different situations differently. You know, um, some people I know if they start their day or in a certain way or they, they feel something, they just won't trade at all. Uh, but for me, I mean, I still like to trade every day, but I can be... I try to control a little bit more whether or not you know maybe there are some days where I just shouldn't trade but um, I actually read in a book there's a book called Market Mind Games um, by Denise Shaw and um, she talks about this idea I think it was in this one anyway like so they say people don't judge risk as well when they haven't had enough sleep which I found mm, very definitely. interesting yeah so your perception of risk, like you put a trade on it even though it carries more risk when you've had less sleep. Uh, yeah, which was a very interesting sort of a thing. So I mean, it's just when you learn and you pick up all these things and then you sort of analyze your own behavior, and, you know, especially if you're recording and journaling a lot of your thoughts, trades and all that sort of stuff, you can start to pick up these patterns in your behavior and then you can build things around it to sort of minimize their impact on your P&L. You know, it's not necessarily about trying to, no one's going to be the perfect human being, you know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, sometimes in the markets, it's emotion, intuition, and like your own discretion that can actually be your edge. So you, you don't want to be a robot or you would just run automated trading systems. So yeah, but you that, just want to understand what those, those biases and whatever are so that you can you can observe them and know they're there yeah exactly man because if you can pick if you know you know as soon as like like language is a big thing as well like as soon as you know that your language is going down here when you're in a trade and you know you might be hoping and you know talking all this nonsense as soon as you pick that you know if you can pick that up in yourself very quickly you can take yourself away from the screen calm yourself down do whatever you've got to do to like recenter and refresh yourself and then come back and then all of a sudden you're like you know what i'm better now like you're not going to let that carry forward you know because the biggest dilemma and the biggest probably issue with a lot of newer traders is they just carry that on you know what i mean like they'll hang on to these negative emotions and negative language and negative thoughts and then it will wreck their account yeah i can imagine that's one of the big uh, advantages of being in a firm is that you're sitting next to someone and they can sort of call you out on your bullshit. 
Yeah, like, absolutely. They, they'll notice you getting negative and they'll say, all right, you're, like, you're done for a bit and like, go away. Yeah, exactly, man. Exactly. And it's good habits to, to build. I mean, I trade probably a little bit more from home these days. Um, and I can sort of see that sometimes creeps in when I'm at home because obviously there's not always somebody next to me to pick that up. But after a while, it's very interesting how, you know, the mentor that I work with at PropX, they can they can sometimes pick that up through just the trade data. You know what I mean? Especially if you're quite active, they you can almost see the FOMO in trades that people are trading. Um, not that I... I don't really go down that path anymore. Like I'm not one to, to necessarily do that. Like I won't be tracing or being putting aggressive size and things like that. But you know, when you're a really active day trader, sometimes you can definitely fall for those sort of traps. You know what I mean? You've had a bad morning and you haven't sort of got your stuff together and in the afternoon there's an opportunity and you just put just a bit more risk on and then it's instantly offside. And then you're like, oh, I'll put a little bit more and then you just get carted and the day ends up being an absolute shocker you know what I mean and then and then the next day you're like oh why did I do that I'm so stupid and blah 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 and then you know you automatically that language again and you know you're not looking at it from like a gross mindset point of view about how you can harness what you did yesterday to make today better yeah have you read much of um, Kahneman and Tversky's work no, I'm not quite sure who that actually is. They what? were, I think, back in the 70s, they sort of started the field of behavioral economics. Okay. Um, so sort of applying psychology to to economics. Um, and they've written a couple of books. Um, I've, I'll quickly look one up. Um, yeah. Daniel Kahneman, his name is. And there's a kind of new one called... Uh, misbehaving by uh, Richard Thaler. Okay. Um, and that's it's it's about the same stuff, but effect, effectively they they talk about these different types of like biases, like like you were saying when people feel losses a lot more than they feel gains, and when they start to to lose things, they'll start to act more irrationally to to win it back. Those sorts of things. Yeah, it's uh, one thing that I've found quite amazing in the markets is when people are offside a certain amount, right? Let's say, for example, you have like a $1,000 stop, right? And your average up day is 200 bucks. When people are down 800, they don't even care about going down 1,000. But then that is completely different if somebody is up 200 and they go back to zero. Up 200 and go back to zero is like an absolute emotional travesty you know what I mean but 800 to 1000 it's like oh well I'm already down who cares which yeah. is that's absolutely... actually one of the things is the thing they call it the anchor anchoring bias it's yep. like you're already seeing an $800 loss so 200 well that's only a quarter of what you're already down um, I think the Daniel Kahneman's book is called Thinking Fast and Slow I think probably, I might have read that heard one of it. yeah I have heard of yeah, that one actually it's fairly popular, um, and Tversky wrote one as well. I can't remember what it was called. But, yeah, they won Nobel Prizes for the uh, work they did. It's quite interesting. And uh, Michael Lewis wrote, wrote a book about them. I think it came out last year. It's called The Undoing Project. Okay. But, yeah, yeah, they're very interesting books. Yeah, it's certainly, like, one of the big things, I guess, of trading that I love the most is really the mental side of it. Because I think it's so much, like like a sport 
you know, like as a trader, you, you really are like a professional athlete, basically. And it's the same in any sort of um, endeavor like that, you know, any sort of peak performance thing. Uh, and it's so fascinating because at the end of the day, like we can always get better. There's always something to work on, some new part to grow, something to learn about. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's very fascinating because you end up learning so much about yourself. And then, you know, when you learn about yourself, you learn, you start to see these patterns in the behavior of those around you as well. And then you're like, ah, so that's why these people do this or say this and or these sorts of things, yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm just uh, conscious of your time. So Matt, do you, did you have anything yeah, yeah, you wanted I just to touch on? One more, one more thing that I wanted to sort of touch on was, um, do you do any sort of investing outside of your trading? I do a little bit. Um, some stuff. Do you do in, like property or equities? Yeah, or? some stuff in property. Um, I probably do. There's probably like property and sort of, I guess, crypto, um, long-term sort of related stuff. More like, I well, yeah. Some well, sort of then in- for the for the crypto side of things, do you kind of find it difficult to wear both the investor hat and the trading hat? Like you. You might be watching your, I don't know, say maybe you're, you're looking at your crypto and you're thinking it's going to go down. Do you find it difficult to think, oh, I'm not going to trade that because I'm holding it long term or? Nah, not really. It's, but I guess for me, man, if I if I feel there's an edge, like I'll trade it. Uh, but I don't, I haven't necessarily spent the time to look and to see if um the way I trade other products I can apply in what I've invested in in this sort of crypto space so it's not really in my mind like and if I do man which I I have can't say I have but if I did it would literally be on the smaller size man it just would not be material at all um, it'd be like me trying to you know with some of these coins that are like you know one fifth of a cent I'd be like trying to trade it with like a one lot. You know what I mean? So it's like you, you, you're an epic trader if you make one cent. <laughs> you know what I mean? In profit or something. Um, but yeah, generally, generally not. But I don't really do too much in Aussie equities, I guess. I don't really have anything in that sort of space. Um, I like stats at the end of the day, man. My whole thing is I love like crunching the numbers of a strategy and trying to find the edge. That's, that is one thing I wanted to touch on was um, you do all this back testing on all this data, but uh, where do you actually go to source your data? Is that something through the prop firm that you get or? Yeah, so you can get a lot of data through our sort of data providers, the software that we pay for. Uh, it can be quite expensive to get hold of futures. It depends how depends how in depth you want it uh, I don't know if you've ever looked at things like tick data before those files are huge yeah um, yeah, yeah. But I was going to say you want it kind of as small as possible yeah to de- get as much detail it depends I mean you can even get data where it will give you the change in the bid offer of the market now that's where you can really test you can literally find the um, maximum size that you could basically trade in that strategy if you were to know because you would know how much liquidity there is in the market at any point when you need to trade 
both you know on the entries and exits and that's pretty pretty cool i mean i don't i've never really gone that deep uh some of my testing has been a little bit uh how do you sort of say it like it's a couple of steps before that level but what I'll generally do is I'll run it live in the market and sort of see how it performs. And then if I sort of like the way it's performing and then I sort of think there's a potential to put size, I'll put size yeah. on it. Did, um, did, uh, did you end up getting into any coding this year or are you doing I, this through Excel? Yeah, I, did a, I tried to do a little bit, man. And to be honest, this is one of the one of the things that I found across across the journey of the last year was that like I, I came to this conclusion that like okay traders need to know how to code and it was something I started to do and I was working doing Python you know all those yeah the numpties or whatever they're called or all this stuff I don't know if you guys code or not yeah but, um, numpy yeah, yeah that's the one all that sort of stuff and man to be honest yeah. it just wasn't really my cup of tea like I would rather work with somebody who's a coder and like share ideas and do that sort of thing then save me a six month journey of learning it and still being an amateur. Um, yeah. Cause the, the issue with coding is that it's gotta be basically perfect. Otherwise it all just blows up and you can never figure out what, yeah, what the issue is. Correct. And, um, yeah. And no, I've, I've gone down that path as well as I started to learn and then you just get dumb errors and you're like, you're kind of just sitting there and you have no idea what's going on. Do you still code much now? <laughs> and then, um, a little bit. Uh, I the the advice I've heard from people is to find something that you actually want to build, and then code that. Um, and so I've I've got a few ideas that I want to do just for like news aggregation. So I'm going to give those a shot. But up until now, I've not really had a real reason to code anything. Would you trade off that? No, no. So I do that for my, uh, I do a podcast every morning, a new, news briefing. Okay. And so I'd, I want to code up something that I can effectively write, not write myself a script, but have all my information in front of me because in the mornings I've got to go and read all the different news sites and find it, find what's happened. So um yeah sort of automating that is my is my goal i wouldn't trade off it yeah okay that's pretty interesting because i guess when when i was learning i was like learning to do was it tic-tac-toe the bloody game and i was like oh what am i gonna do with this i'm like this isn't gonna help me make more money in the markets that probably was part of the reason why i didn't really uh pursue it maybe if i set out straight away and i was like all right i'm i'm coding this because this is gonna i'm gonna run this next week live and it's going to make me money or it's just going to completely blow up but yeah i've heard that's the advice i've heard yeah is is just like when if you want to learn to code just like even if it's something simple but something that you want to build uh is to go and build that and then you'll figure out what you need to know to build that thing and then one day you'll maybe want to expand it and you figure out the tools as you go um that's just for like purely keeping interest because i also i've done the same thing that you've done and gone through and like some sort of a course and even mine was finance related but it was pricing bonds and i mean like pricing bonds isn't the most interesting thing and you're sitting there like oh this is this is a little bit boring uh 
like and so you sort of fall off it because it's not not stimulating you uh, and things that like excite you yeah absolutely i definitely agree with that like it it does make a big difference i guess that's why i decided not to and plus i've got this kind of i've heard a lot of horror stories man of like algos going awol and like literally just buying and selling into your accounts at zero um which i would prefer not to take part in those sort of uh experiences shall we say (laughs) yeah generally um have you like obviously you do a lot of your uh, back testing in excel and doing your data analysis in excel has have you ever thought of coding that and using something like sql to to do that sort of stuff or does excel just works for you and yeah excel does generally do the job i mean next year i'm definitely going to be going down the path of finding ways to be more efficient because excel like takes time you know what i mean and sometimes i think that i could probably instead like for example right let's say i have 10 ideas it might take me a month to test each idea manually through all the nonsense that i'm doing whereas like if I had something that I could code up, which would um, get it done quicker. I mean, the main thing for me is I really need to work on stuff that like sorts and cleans the data very quickly and matches data, especially if I'm trading spreads because some things open and close at different times. So you can't just like put them side by side because the times don't line up. So yeah. I think that's what SQL is quite good for that, actually. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, you can you can clean data and like align data like that into your tables and whatnot. So um, I'd probably look that way for for um, if you're wanting to deal with data. SQL is quite powerful. Yeah. Okay. I might have to might have to check it out. See if there's anyone in the office who can who already knows it who can give me a bit of a head start if they've got anything built already. It's interesting, actually, the amount of um, like free resources i know there's it's maybe not necessarily about like cleaning the data and things like that but the amount of stuff that's available even for retail traders i don't know if anyone really uses trading view for like stocks but um in terms of like people who trade crypto and fx you know they're always on trading view and trading view's got pine script or something which has which people have already created all these like things to do back testing and all sorts of stuff on it and it just makes your job so much easier if you don't know how to code you know what i mean yeah because yeah i mean the biggest thing is uh if the data is not right like there's uh, one data set starts on one day and another data set starts on another day that's just something you need to know how to efficiently do and if there's certain markets that are closed on some days and so you've just got different number of entries and uh, that's the stuff that really throws you in the at the end of the day yeah dude exactly exactly like aussie markets close different to u.s markets different to european markets and you know when things are open and closing at different times and then when there's public holidays some markets close earlier than others and some don't close and yeah it can yeah so you'll have anzac day and so we're closed and if you're trying to compare to s&p 500 and asx 200 well now you're you're off a day exactly right that's just that just makes things difficult yeah something all of a sudden looks like it doesn't mean of it anymore but it's like you're not even comparing the same things together so 
it can get a bit out of control with that but that's probably because that literally takes up sometimes so much time you know and unless you've got quicker ways to do it I mean you can always just chart things up and just trade it but you know at the end of the day you're not going to have that conviction right and um, yeah I had a chat with somebody about this the other week and we were talking about conviction and as a trader right the only difference really well one of the differences between you putting your house on every trade or this is this is even with anything in life really any sort of trade as such any sort of decision the only reason you wouldn't put your house on is because you're not convicted enough about the outcome um, and sometimes it can be that it there is genuinely too much risk you know what I mean like and that's that's it but you need to know that for a certain you need to know that there is more risk and that that is the the certainty that's going to give you more conviction not just like the idea that like you know why didn't you put more money behind this trade oh yeah I just I've had a string of losses or I wasn't feeding it or it didn't like unless you can really define it you know what I mean like working on the conviction is, is certainly something to uh to look at I doing. read a really interesting book read a really interesting book uh, just last week called The Signal and the Noise by Nate Silver. Um, and it's about, uh, yeah, Signal and the Noise by Nate Silver. I can send it to you if you want. Um, and it, it's written, I think it came out in about 2013 or 2014. And it's a guy, he's basically spent his whole career making predictions. And so he writes, he wrote this book about predicting predicting and forecasting and he each chapter is basically a different case study uh, and he uses them to show different uh, issues or uh, things to think about when you're making predictions and which is effectively what you're doing when you're trading you're making a prediction about what's going to happen and um, so like and he uses a bunch a bunch of really cool um case studies like predicting the weather and predicting elections and predicting sports games and whatnot. Are they using um, all and like it's, mathematical models for that stuff? No, no. So, well, he writes the book about, about any, like some of them use very advanced mathematical models, but the book itself doesn't have any of that. He just talks about the, like the structure and the thought process behind it and understanding why even like in some cases he had, um, so like one of his examples was predicting weather where you've got a very highly complex system and so you can keep adding complexity to the model but it doesn't necessarily make your prediction any better. Um, and so he compares some models uh, in predicting the weather versus just taking the average temperature for a month and comparing it, like you make a prediction based on all well, December's average 24 degrees and then using a more complex model and seeing if that's any better or worse. Um, and so it's just a, it was a really interesting way of looking at how do we think about our predictions? How do we know if our predictions are any good? Cause they're not gonna work out right 100% of the time but that doesn't necessarily mean that like we're bad at predicting. It just it's about measuring, yeah, like you said, the conviction or 
how much risk is in there, how much certainty do we have, and things like that. It's, it's only about 400 pages, the book. It's really good. Yeah, wow. I think I, I feel like I saw something recently, actually, about the process that goes into, uh, like, forecasting the weather. And, like, there's models. Actually, it might have been um, the Jim Simon's book. Didn't they talk about it? Yes. Yeah. Um, I think some of those people came from one of the yeah. weather predicting places. Like some of the people in the firm. Yeah, yeah. Because um, like- there was that. They had, I think, yeah, some meteorologists and then they had the natural language processing guys from IBM. And like that was basically the the origins of their strategy. Um, obviously, it's probably evolved a lot, but the origins of their strategy was using similar to what early natural language processing was. It was like if you have one thing or a collection of things happen, like a collection of words, what's most likely to come next? And so it helps you to to understand what's happening now by making predictions and then testing your prediction. Crazy, isn't it? That's, it's really fascinating stuff, hey? Because you just, you realize how, like... Even in that, that's pretty much what you're doing in the markets. And yet we sit here, and this is why for me, I love the whole, uh, I love the the quant approach, but with like a discretionary overlay. You know what I mean? Like I think, because I think it's exactly like that, right? Where we're forecasting the next words of what somebody's got to say, but then we're taking into account the context in which it's being said. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, I mean, that's what uh, Rentec did, <laughs> and it worked out for them. Yeah, it worked out really uh, well for them, but didn't yeah, it? Yeah, one of the one of the things that came out of the Nate Silver book was that you've got there's kind of two broad schools in statistics, uh, schools of thought. So there's the Bayesian school of thought, and there's the what's called frequentist school of thought. Like you've heard of confidence intervals, yeah. That, that's basically frequentism where you talk about, well, we're 95% confident that things will turn out in this way. And so you've got that like margin of error on each side. And that's kind of in a lot of science and a lot of statistics, that's very commonly used because it's fairly easy to mathematically model something like that. But the issue is if something doesn't sort of work on a, a say a normal distribution very well, like uh, options don't work particularly well on a normal distribution, then that can fall apart. So Nate Silver argues that we should th- try to think in a Bayesian statistics sort of way, which looks at effectively you make a prediction um, like, you know, conditional probability. So you say, what's the probability of X if Y? Uh, that's Bayesian statistics. And so the thought process he lays out is saying, all right, well, if this thing happens, we make a prediction. And if that prediction comes true, then we update our, our model effectively. And he said that that sort of way of thinking is a much better way of thinking for some situations because it allows us to obviously update our model as we go and we can uh, often come out to a much better answer than if we just use like a a normal distribution and assume that 
it's normal. Yeah, right. That's pretty interesting. Makes sense though. It definitely makes sense. I mean, I probably already I think of that. I just might not know all the uh, all the terms. But it's amazing how that can be applied in so many different areas of life. And I mean, that's probably why a lot of the time, you know, I guess from from even my experience in prop, you know, they've brought in a lot of. There's been a lot of people who have come in who have been poker players, and yeah. Yeah, they do well. That was one of the big things in uh, Nate Silver's book was he talks about a poker player and it's a massive part of the strategy for for poker players is they'll obviously you see what cards you have so now you have some information about what the rest of the cards on the table are because they can't be the two cards you have. And then when you see some more cards pop up, you can start updating your predictions and so one of the chapters is about that, how you can see how certain uh, like certain hands get played out. And he used, I think, like World Series of Poker's finals hands to show how the probabilities changed based on the cards that were coming up and what seemed like crazy bets some people were making are actually perfectly rational because of their thinking in a Bayesian way. Yeah, absolutely. I think the interesting thing with poker too is probably one of the most widely known things that people do where this type of thinking and analysis is used on like a on like a front which is fairly accessible to most people. Like most people know about this particular way in which how the top poker people think and play, but it's not really spoken about in the same way with other things. You know what I mean? Like we that's probably used in every day, every different decisions people make and assessing different things, right? But it's yeah, not I guess as widely known. It's as not spoken about. Mm. Not, yeah, not in the same way. And I way. guess the yeah, because I think when you when you're going about your life, like even like we were speaking, if you're listening to someone talk your brain's probably doing like a subconscious thing where you're updating your predictions about what they might say next uh, as you're going. Actually, I, I'm, I'm fairly sure they do because when I was younger, I like I have, uh, I'm hard of hearing. And so I, when I was younger, I taught myself to lip read just so like I'd combined what I was hearing with what a person's lips were doing. And I would sort of like, predict what the person had just said if that makes sense yeah right I um, think- like i didn't actually i didn't actually hear it and so i'd gone to a speech therapist at one point and i figured out if they covered their mouth i couldn't understand what they were saying because i was using the two sort of sources of the data to decode what was being said yeah wow um and so yeah i think i actually i feel like i saw something about this kind of topic recently where they it might have even been in the Market Mind Games book or a video I was watching on it, but it did say that we do um, like anticipate, like our, our brains sort of like forecast what the next things are that people are going to say before, the, before they've actually said it. You know, that's where it, that whole idea of like, you know, when you know someone quite well, you finish the sentence for them. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely something that our brains are, predisposed to do but i think that in formal settings where we're not 
I don't th- we don't think that way very well when we're thinking formally about something, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like if we're trying to put like pen to paper and come up with a model for something, it's much easier for us to conceive of like a normal distribution and work with confidence intervals. But our brains actually sort of predisposed to think in a more Bayesian way and make constant predictions. It's a lot uh, more in our in a, on a subconscious. Yeah, level. that's exactly what I was about to say. It's a lot more subconscious this way of thinking, and that half the time people, you know, you gotta be, yeah. Do people trust their subconscious, or do they trust what's floating around in their head at that time? Yeah, I guess that can be applied to trading and really thinking about, uh, like trying to build up your conscious mind to think in that sort of fashion that your unconscious mind is already predisposed to do yeah exactly like if you think about if you think the hard part is training it like that like if you think about driving a car right we can react to dangers on the road because it's like in our subconscious kind of thing you know what i mean but like when we when people trade because they're trying to be a lot more i guess like analytical we lose that edge that we have that comes from our subconscious because it's hard to sort of like train yourself to sort of trade out of that and it only comes from experience you know that's why they say like for example if you're a day trader the screen time is the most important thing because as long as you're paying attention and you're present you can start to bring up a lot of things and train your subconscious for certain patterns so that when you see it there's no hesitation and there's no barrier between you know yourself and you know, what you subconsciously know you should be doing. Yeah. Well, if you think about like when you first learn to drive and like you come up to say a a corner and you've got to shift down your gears and you've got to get on your, your brakes and indicate and do all these things. And at first it seems really overwhelming. Oh my God, like I've got to like do four different things at once. But after a little bit, it just, you come to the corner, you just take the corner. Like you don't have to think about what you're actually doing to take the corner. Exactly. And it's interesting too, because it just shows that we can all train ourselves to do this. Like we can all train ourselves to be like that and to, you know, be able to execute things through our subconscious. But, you know, a lot of people don't or don't believe they can. Yeah. I wonder if the, uh, in trading if it's the fact that when you do something you pretty much instantly see if you are right or wrong in that you either have a profit or a loss whereas in other things like say driving there's very rare times where you actually see that you were wrong uh like you might you might make a mistake but because there's other factors like going on you may not crash into something every time. Yeah. Whereas that's a good if you point. if you make a mistake in your trading, you're gonna if you make a mistake in your trading, you're gonna have a loss ninety nine percent of the time. And so you don't like there's probably your sub your conscious mind is registering that loss every time. Whereas when you're when you're doing something like driving, you're not necessarily consciously realizing that you you've made a mistake yeah and so you're much more able to trust your subconscious true maybe the conscious is trying to protect us from pain um and I, i'm pretty sure i read something like that somewhere once as well is that most of the time we don't want to 
like our body and our minds are trying to keep us away from pain so sometimes they'll you know in a car we're not going to experience the pain unless we crash and then we know we're wrong but in trading because if you are in the trade and you do lose money you are experiencing the pain and then that's where you know then people start to do all weird stuff to try and avoid that so they're not kind of exposed to that pain and that sort of thing and i guess you were right before on the like on the topic of sort of being really analytical about it is that trading is completely predisposed to being analytical because you it's all numbers and it's all it's all some sort of a number and so you you just instantly want to look for those patterns and and interpret the data whereas in things like like if you're walking around or driving around you can you can figure out the numbers if you want to of like how much do I need to turn the steering wheel to get it to go around this bend at like this speed you can figure out the numbers if you want to but you don't actually need to because and your brain doesn't instantly flick to that because there's no numbers to see you'd have to abstract yourself from the situation yeah it's more it's almost from feel like it's it's interesting because you know you got like there's a number of like it's it's interesting like your own sort of perception of it like if if you were told right now like if you were shown a picture and were told to turn this turn your car's steering wheel to like the amount that would get you around that corner you could probably do it even without doing it because you would know about how much of a number or how many degrees you would need to turn it to be able to complete that particular task you know do you think so or do you think that there's probably a a level of or you've just turned it and if you're wrong you're instantly making a correction whereas if you've got a static picture yeah true true probably be wrong a fair amount it's just like clicking and that's that's where you get like trading you're making a decision in an instant and you're not getting that feedback obviously if you're when you're in a car the bandwidth of feedback you're getting is much higher yeah that's because you're feeling like the g-forces you're feeling the the vibrations of the car you're hearing the engine yeah good point i think actually yeah you're probably right because i think if you if you if you were like showing a picture on the apex of the corner you would have to go through the process of entering the corner and then you like you would have to in your mind run through the whole process to actually get to that point rather than just being like oh yeah this is where it would be uh, yeah interesting interesting but yeah you're right you're right trading gives you that feedback directly you know you know you're right you know you're wrong rather than most and you don't have there. an opportunity to correct yourself in like minor ways yeah like when you're just about to stop out you can't just suddenly do something to to you know cut the pain and make a winner save the situation save the day yeah, like if if you're driving, like going back to the driving thing, if you're say racing and you're just pushing the car to the edge of the grip, that it's got, like a, a good race driver knows how to do that, and they can just push it and hold it on that edge. Whereas trading is a very binary thing; either you get stopped out or you don't. You don't you don't really have that control right on the edge. Yeah, yeah, it's very true. It's very. And true. I guess a, a really good trader would find ways to to do that sort of thing yeah 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 it's fascinating it's very fascinating stuff man like it's that's why i guess so many people are like lured to trading 
because they they want to sort of they want to sort of experience this but then yeah the reason why so many people don't know probably one of the reasons why i love it so much too is because it's it's such a challenge that not a lot of things encompass the same sort of a uh basically of a challenge really right um things like people think it's just you know oh it's numbers based and you gotta be you know good with numbers and good with you know as a quant or program or something but there's a lot more than that that comes into it you know like from the mental side of it like um, yeah definitely it's definitely one of those like probably one of the more difficult things to to learn uh like because there's so many different aspects of it and it's all got to be fairly analytical when you're learning it but ideally you don't want it to be analytical in the end yeah absolutely man just like any professional sport you know and then the whole idea of self-awareness plays a big part of it you know like there's that whole idea about we overestimate our own abilities so you know if you're you're in the markets thinking that you're right and you can't ever see you know the balance the other side of the trade and what other people might be thinking when you're wrong you know it can be hard to learn and improve and so they get better from that side. Yes, definitely. I'm probably not cut out for, for that sort of thing. I work much more in a sort of slow, methodical, analytical way. But, I mean, big props to the people who can can do it well. Yeah, I mean, everyone's got their own sort of skill sets, I guess. At the end of the day, you know, like, you do what interests you the most and where your, where your skills best lie and... You know, there's a lot of, like, I've seen a lot of people come and go through prop firms. You know, a lot of people were drawn to trading for probably the wrong reasons. Um, I mean, to be fair, I probably started off wanting to just make lots of money in trading. And then you realize that you love it. And you realize that it's something that you really want to do. Um, but it's just one of those things. It's like anything, you know what I mean? you got to try it and get your head around it and really just know yourself, know your own strengths and weaknesses and, assess that i think that's like anything isn't it anything in life i mean if you're going to be successful at it you need to know your own strengths and weaknesses where they lie and how you can maximize them in whatever you're doing anyway did you have anything you wanted to just quickly finish off with or myself yeah no no that that finishing on the uh investing thing was um was it for me all right well, thanks for coming on, Anthony. Yeah, not a problem, mate. It's been good to to have a chat about, you know, trading and mindset and all that sort of stuff. It's a uh, certainly a topic I enjoy discussing. Um, I think it can yeah, apply in definitely. everything. We'll have you back on at some point. Yeah, absolutely, mate. We can we can talk about some random topic or something, and uh, we could have it on one of our random, our usual random uh, uh, podcast. Now that you've got the introduction. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> There's always some random things that you read in books and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, definitely. That's good to. All right, well, talk about. yeah, we'll definitely look to get you back on at some point. Uh, I actually didn't have much time to plan an episode this week, so. Uh, but we'll get you back on maybe when there's some big news going on, and we can have some ch- a chat about that as well. Sounds good. Sweet as. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. And uh, yeah, we'll see you whenever the next episode comes out.